Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. We're going to read verse 6 through verse 9. Verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your greatness, the greatness of your power and the greatness of your love. And we thank you for this time to read the scriptures together and to think about your greatness, to marvel together at your greatness. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning as we think about this passage, that you would open up our understanding, that you would cause us to listen in a manner worthy of listening to your word. Help us to realize that when we gather to hear the scriptures, we're not gathering to hear tradition or what man has to say, but what you have to say. Lord, help us to realize that you desire to speak to us this morning. You desire to speak to us through your word, through the scriptures. Lord, help us to listen eagerly, knowing that you can do mighty things when your word hits our hearts. Lord, we give you praise And we pray that this would be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It should be obvious when we read this passage that the key word in this passage is the word gospel. That should be obvious, right? You can see the word gospel in verse 6, the word gospel in verse 7, the word gospel in verse 8, and the word gospel in verse 9, and that doesn't even include the places in this passage where the gospel is being alluded to, but it's not actually explicitly saying it. Gospel is clearly the key word in this passage that we read this morning. This is the word that we're going to be focusing on this morning. And Paul's point in this passage is very clear. It's not a difficult point at all. The gospel is the key word, and his main point here is that there is only one gospel. That's his main point. There's only one gospel. There's a famous saying that all roads lead to Rome. How many of you have heard that saying before? And you know, many people apply that saying to God. Have you ever heard them apply that one to God? All, like all roads lead to Rome, so all roads lead to God. And people say this meaning, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what your religion is, it doesn't matter what different religious practices you do, it's all really going to get you to the same place. It's all going to get you to God. All roads lead to God. Isn't God merciful and gracious that it doesn't matter what road you're on and you'll, you'll end up being with him? And if that's true for all religions, much more is it true for all those slight variations within Christianity, right? So you've got Christianity and you've got different versions of Christianity. And if Islam and Buddhism lead to God, then much more of these different versions of Christianity will lead to God too. All roads lead to God. To this idea 
The Apostle Paul answers, no. True? Paul says, no. Now, whatever may be true about that first saying, all roads lead to Rome in the ancient world, it's not true about the second saying, all roads lead to God. Not all roads lead to God. There's only one gospel. There's only one road that leads to God. And all other roads are false roads that lead to hell, the Bible tells us. See, what Paul's saying here in this passage is this very thing. And what he's saying here is in accordance with what Jesus himself taught. In John chapter 14, verse 6, one of the most famous sayings of Jesus in the church, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You cannot go to God except through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what people tell you. People tell you that you can get to God in some other way besides Jesus. And he says, no one, he says no, comes to the Father except if they come to the Father through me. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 13, that you must enter into life through the narrow gate. And broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many walk down it. But narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it, Jesus said. See, it seems like there's many roads, actually, that people are traveling, but Jesus basically just narrows it down to two. He says, you know, there's only two roads, and they both don't lead to God. There's only two roads, and they both don't lead to God. There's the narrow road, and there's the broad road. There's the narrow road that leads to life, and there's the broad road that leads to destruction. Jesus, of course, by saying, I am the way that leads to the Father, in John 14, 6, is saying, He is that way. He is that gate, he tells us in another place. He is that one way to the Father. There's Christ and there's not Christ. There's only two roads. Christ and not Christ. Buddhism, Islam, and all those other religions are not Christ. That's one road. Not many roads. There's Christ and there's not Christ. There's the gospel and there's not the gospel. Those are your only two options. You know, the surprising thing is not that there's only one way. It's, it, should, it shouldn't surprise us that there's only one way. What should surprise us is that there is a way to the Father. Amen? Amen? <laughs> it should amaze us that we can come to the Father. We sinners, you and me, with all of our unrighteousness that we manifest every day, right? Every day. And yet we can come to the righteous and holy and everlasting Father. And we're invited through a way, through Jesus Christ. And that's what's amazing. And it's even more amazing when we realize exactly what that way is, the way of Christ. What is the gospel? The word gospel means good news, as you probably all know. Look at verse 7. Paul calls the gospel at the end of verse 7, the gospel of Christ. The gospel about Christ. It's the good news of Christ the good news about Christ. And as you go on through the book of Galatians, Paul says other things about the gospel. And you can kind of frame it and get a sense of what he's talking about. As, you go, as we're going to go on in Galatians, Paul says that the gospel is that which, that which he preached, that which the apostles preach. They preach Christ, and that's good news. The gospel is what the apostles preached. It is the Christian message. In Galatians, as we go on, he calls the gospel the truth. The gospel is the truth. No gospels are not the truth. 
These other false gospels, which are not really gospels at all, are not the truth. And Paul also t- says that the gospel is our passport to freedom. That's what he, this is what Galatians is, is emphasizing. You're gonna, if you lose the gospel, you're going to lose the freedom because it's the gospel that brings you into freedom. So it's the message the apostles preached, it's the truth, and it's our passport to freedom. It's about Christ. The question is, what truth about Christ did the apostles preach that brings us into freedom? That's the question. What truth about Christ did the apostles preach that delivers us from bondage and brings us into freedom? And here's the point. Galatians, the letter here, is unmistakably clear about what the gospel is that brings us into freedom. What it is about Christ that brings us into freedom. It's unmistakably clear. We're going to see it as we go on. It's the message or the good news of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And not by any works that we do. Isn't this good news? You don't have to do any good deeds. You don't have to meet any standards. You don't have to prove to God that you're the real deal. He knows you're not the real deal. He knows you're a sinner. And the good news is is that Christ came into the world to save sinners and you can be saved. You can have that righteousness as a free gift through faith and not by any works. That's the good news that Paul is going to argue and defend all throughout the letter to the Galatians. It's this that makes the gospel good news. Think about it. Take away righteousness through faith. Take away salvation by grace through faith. And do you have any good news anymore? Even if you're preaching about Jesus. Jesus came to earth. Okay. (laughs) How does that help me? Jesus preached morality. How does that help me? Jesus died and rose from the dead. How does that help me? That's cool. But how is it good news? It's only good news when it becomes the message of salvation and righteousness through faith and not by any works that we do. That because of what he did on the cross, because he died for our sins, you can be saved freely. Because he took away your sins, you can be justified in the judgment of God apart from any works that you do just by putting your trust in him. That is the indispensable core of the gospel. It's always under attack because if you lose it, you lose the good news and you lose it all. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Please turn there with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 tells us that this is the indispensable core of the gospel. Romans 1, 16. 16 and 17. If we lose it, we lose it all. In Romans 1, 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here's what he says about the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. That's the way he describes this good news. It's the power, it's God's ability to save you. It's his ability to save whoever believes. Now he doesn't just leave it there. Look at in verse 17. It begins with the word for. Which means, now he's explaining in verse 17 why the gospel is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. In verse 16, he tells you what it is. In verse 17, he tells you why it is that. And here's why. What does it say? Should it surprise us that this is here? The gospel is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek, because 
In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. That's why the gospel is powerful to save you. And if you take that out, guess what? No more power to save. No more power in the gospel to save. If you lose the righteousness of God that's revealed from faith to faith. Of course, if you know Romans, he goes on to explain what that means in verse 17. He goes on to explain that now a righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ upon all who believe. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the sacrifice of Jesus. You lose that and you lose the power of God to save. No righteousness through faith, no power. But it's because of righteousness through faith that the Bible can, in other places, talk about the hope of the gospel, I quote. Remember where it talks about the hope of the gospel? No righteousness through faith, my friends. No hope of the gospel. It talks about the gospel of peace in the Bible. No righteousness through faith. No gospel of peace. The Bible tells us that the gospel, that life and immortality is brought to light through the gospel. No righteousness through faith, no life and immortality brought to light through the gospel. Amen? The Bible also talks about the mystery of the gospel. And this righteousness through faith is indeed the great mystery that we could be righteous through faith. I, I quote a veteran in the knowledge of righteousness through faith, John Bunyan. Quote, It is so mysterious that it goes beyond the reach of all men except those to whom an understanding is given of God to apprehend it. How many of you can relate to that? This truth of righteousness through faith, it's so weird, isn't it? It's so strange that another person should take your sins upon him on the cross. That's weird. And he dies for your sins and he, is, he takes the, the bearing of sin and the death that is the wages of sin, even though he is righteous. He dies a death that he doesn't deserve, so we can obtain a life that we don't deserve. Unless the Spirit reveals this to you, you know it. Non-believers just over their head. They just don't get it. The religious non-believers just don't get it over their head. Bunyan goes on, that the most righteous should die as a sinner Yea, as a sinner by the hand of a just and holy God is a mystery of the greatest depth. And indeed, this is one of the greatest mysteries in the world, namely that a righteousness that resides with a person in heaven should justify me a sinner on earth. The mystery of the gospel. By the way, if you lose righteousness through faith, you lose all the mystery. It's not a mystery anymore. It's just human religion after that, right? God came into the world, told you to be good. If you're not good, you're going to go to hell. No mystery there. You know? <laughs> no righteousness through faith, no mystery. No mystery, no power, no power, no salvation, no salvation, no good news. So it, it amazes me when, when Christians um, fail to explain the gospel using the, the, the concept of righteousness through faith. And I think that here in Utah, I mean, I know more about Logan, Loganites than I do about other places in Utah. Maybe I'll just say here in Logan. I think here in Logan, 
there is a better understanding of what the gospel really is because of the Mormon culture here and, and because it forces us to think more deeply about the gospel. So if we were to ask you, you know, what is the good news? I hope that most of you would say something about righteousness through faith, right? Something about, yeah, telling, of course you're going to tell that Jesus came into the world, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, so that we could be justified or forgiven or saved by grace through faith alone, without our works, right? You would say that, and, and that's the essence of the good news. But I tell you, there's Christians all over this, this country and in Canada, where I'm from, and you ask them what's the gospel, they really don't know how to answer that question using the concept of righteousness through faith at all. And when we lose righteousness through faith, we really aren't, we lose Christianity. And our Christianity is just, I'm a believer in God and Jesus, and I'm trying to be the best person I can be. I watched a YouTube video once, a prominent leader in the quote-quote Christian world. And the video was called, What is the Gospel? on YouTube. And it was from this prominent leader, so I thought, oh, I'm gonna, this is going to be interesting. I want to hear what he has to say. Not once did he mention righteousness. Not once did he even mention any concept like it. It was absent. If Paul, in his day, and if the church in his day was being threatened to lose the gospel, how much more in the 21st century do we have to guard the gospel and the indispensable core of righteousness through faith? The gospel is the good news that even though we are unrighteous sinners who deserve God's wrath, Christ came into the world because God loves this world to die for our sins so that we can have our sins taken away, so that we can be blameless in the sight of God as a free gift, not by any commandment keeping or good works that we do, but simply as a gift received by us through faith. Jesus now is risen and he reigns in grace. Anyone who comes to him in faith will be saved. What, a, what an awesome message to share with people. This is why all, re, all roads don't lead to God. Because there's only one road that provides for unrighteous sinners in the light of a holy and righteous God of judgment and justice, the righteousness that we need. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount emphasized it over and over and over again that in order to be saved and enter into the kingdom of God, you have to be righteous. He made that very, very clear. And there's no other way that provides that righteousness. Jesus emphasized over and over that when, you, when, God, when I come and judge this world, I'm going to put the unrighteous on one side and the righteous on the other. The unrighteous are going to be sent into everlasting punishment and the righteous into everlasting life. It's this issue of righteousness that's the key thing. And that's why there's only one way, because only one way provides that righteousness only Jesus Christ provides it for us. All the other ways is just be the best person you can be. Try to achieve it on your own. And there may be a whole bunch of different uh, religions that give you diff different advice on how to be righteous on your own, but it's ultimately all one road, self-righteousness. So there's only two roads. Christ and not Christ. Righteousness through faith or righteousness through works. The gospel or not the gospel. And this is the issue Paul's facing here in Galatians because there was these Pharisees who came from Jerusalem and they were telling the people of Galatia, the churches of Galatia, you know, you, you can't be saved and pass the judgment of God unless you contribute some righteousness of your own. They're saying that works is necessary for salvation. They're saying you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law of Moses. It can't just be Christ. You can't just put your faith in Christ. 
You can't just do all that you want and sin and then just think that you can believe and be saved. You have to show God that you're righteous. Paul is saying to the Galatians, if you depart from this gospel, the true gospel, you are departing into something that is no good news at all. It's almost like they're about to step on a landmine and Paul says, stop! Don't take another step. Back off slowly. If you go down that road, you're going to perish. It's, it's so serious. Even though most people would not think it to be a serious thing. Because for most people, these issues go over their head. This morning, I'd like to talk about three things from this passage that happens. Three things that happen when you depart from the gospel. Three things that happen when you depart from the true gospel. First, When a person departs from the gospel, a person departs from God. Verse 6. Paul begins in verse 6 with amazement, and as it's been pointed out before, typically Paul would um, jump off here into thanksgiving for the people that he's writing to, a prayer for them. But here there's no such thanksgiving and there's no such prayer. Just amazement. But notice what the amazement is about. He says in verse 6, Not that he's amazed merely that they're departing from the gospel. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Notice, he doesn't just say, I'm amazed you're departing from the truth of the gospel. Of course he's amazed. But he's amazed that they're departing from him. Who's him? From God. A departure from the gospel is in fact a departure from God because God and the gospel are inseparably related. 2 John chapter 1, verse 9, John tells us, He who transgresses and does not abide in the, in the doctrine of Christ, or who goes beyond the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. But he who abides in the doctrine of Christ, the teaching about Jesus, he is the one who has both the Father and the Son. If you want to be with God, you've got to be with the Gospel. And if you depart from the Gospel then you're actually departing from God. Jesus made it very clear that this is really all about knowing God. Eternal life is really all about knowing God. Coming to know Him. Coming to have fellowship with Him. Coming to have relationship with Him. Living with Him. You remember in John 17, Jesus makes much about that being the reason why we're saved. We're saved to have communion and fellowship with God. And if you look at the end of the book of Revelation, what do we find at the end? the end of the Bible, the end of all things, we find God and man living together, relating together in fellowship with one another. The tabernacle of God has, be, has come to dwell among the tab- tabernacles of men. It's really all about God and you being with God. Do you see that as a Christian? And it's not just about getting your sins forgiven and booted away. But really, as a Christian, you are one who is with God. God is with you, and you have the knowledge of Him and the relationship with Him. I think there were probably few things that amazed Paul, but he was amazed that they would depart from God. Depart from God? Who would depart from God? And especially when you consider that, as Paul says here in verse 6, He who called you By grace. The word is in grace. 
It doesn't mean he called you into grace, which is true, but that's not the point Paul is drawing on, pointing out here. He didn't call you into grace, which is true, but he called you in grace, meaning that's what was in God's heart when he called you. When he called you to himself, it was in the atmosphere of grace. It was in his heart to call you in grace. How many of you have ever been called or summoned not in grace? Eli! (laughs) You get a call from a marketer on the phone. Is this Eli Braley? Yes. I have a message for you. Uh, You know, you can win this thing, a marketer or something. They're not calling me in grace. They're not, in their heart is not love for me and care for me. They're calling me because it's their job and they want to get something from me. Or when you're called to the principal's office as a child, right? Eli, please come to the principal's office. Oh boy, here we go. They're calling me, but it's not in grace. It's because I'm in trouble. Or let's say, I was also thinking about something a little bit more positive, but still falls short of grace. And that's, I, I was thinking of when, a game, when you're at a game show and they draw your name and they say, would Eli come on up, you know? And that's a positive thing, but it's still not in grace. Because I got called my name out of a hat, and, and I'm, going, I'm going up there to be tested. If I fail, I go sit down, right? It's, and you have a chance to prove yourself here. You have a chance to show the world how smart you are, how stupid you are. Come on! <laughs> in all those cases, I'm called, but none of them, I'm called in grace. But here, God calls us to himself in grace because we're loved and because he wants to bless you. Not because he wants to test you, not because he wants to uh, punish you, not because he's calling to get something out of you, but he's calling because he wants to bless you. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful thing? That God has called each of us because he loves us and he wants to bless us. That's the kind of call. Eli, come. I love you. I want to bless you. I want to rescue you. And I want to do it because I care about you. I'm not trying to get anything out of you. He called us in his grace. And grace is a key word we're going to see all throughout the book of Galatians. God loves you, brothers and sisters. God loves this whole world. And he calls you by name to himself to bless you. Think about that. And thus to desert the God who calls you in grace is an amazing thing. It's hard to fathom why anyone would do that. John Calvin says, to revolt from God under any circumstances is unworthy and distasteful. But to revolt from him after being invited to partake of salvation by grace is more eminently base. His goodness to us renders our ingratitude to him more dreadfully heinous. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. between Isaiah and Ezekiel. Paul tells us that to depart from the gospel is really not just to depart from a teaching, it's to depart from God. And this is an old phenomenon. There's nothing new here. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Nothing new here. God has been deserted by people for years and years and years. From the very beginning, in fact, the very first man deserted God, didn't he? 
has in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, has a nation changed gods when they are not gods? Here's again, you've, you've changed one god for another, but guess what? It's not really another. You've changed one gospel for another, but it's not really another. Has a nation changed gods when they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. You've changed the good for that which is not good. Be appalled, verse 12. That's the amazement of Paul, I think, in Galatians Galatians 1. Be amazed, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. For what? To hewn for themselves, to work really hard, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Be appalled. When a person leaves the gospel, it's that crazy. When a person comes to the gospel from those broken cisterns, it's that wise. It's that profitable. You're exchanging nothing for everything when you become a Christian. Because you're exchanging no God for God. Because you're getting him. Paul is also amazed in Galatians chapter 1 at not only that they're departing from God, but how quickly they're departing from God. Turn with me to Exodus 32. Once again, we find that this is nothing new in Galatians. In Galatians, This is nothing new. Paul says, how quickly you're departing from him who called you in grace. I mean, this is just after his first missionary journey. This is just after the churches have been planted and he's preached the gospel to them and they believed and they were excited about grace. And after he leaves, these guys come through and they say, oh, wow, wow. They start following after these other things. How quickly. But once again, nothing new. Exodus 32, verse 7. The context here is the golden calf. The golden calf. When God brings Israel out of Egypt miraculously. And this is not long after that. And he brings them to Mount Sinai and he says, just Moses, come up here. I'm going to give you the instructions. And then while Moses is gone, the people build for themselves the golden calf and they say, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. So quickly, God says in verse 7. Exodus 32, 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. In a little while, Moses is going to remind God, actually, it's your people whom you brought up. (laughs) Verse 8. Look what he says. They have quickly, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So this is nothing new, is it? Men depart from God and they depart from God quickly. And they depart from the living and true God for for nothing. This is the flock of Moses and Paul. Isn't that amazing? These two groups that are departing are the flocks of Moses and Paul. And you might think, wow, if we had a Moses and Paul or a Paul around, then our flocks wouldn't depart. But the flocks of Moses and Paul did. And this shows us what human nature is. And then it's not a Moses and it's not a Paul that keeps men. 
It's not a personality that's going to keep you with God. Because being kept with God is the work of God. It's God who can keep you with God. Because our human nature is to depart. Just look at the Garden of Eden and on. And look how dull we are and how dangerous it is, this world it is, if we rely upon ourselves or other people or our own strength or our own wisdom or the wisdom and strength of another. How quickly we will find that all supports besides God are false. So of course we must be diligent realizing, wow, our nature is to depart. But we need to be encouraged that the Bible tells us that if you are born of God, if, if the reason why you believe is because it's, you've been born from the Spirit and the Spirit has revealed these things to you, then you cannot fall away from God because God himself is the one who holds you and keeps you with himself and protects you. 1 John 5 verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatever is born of God will overcome the world. You don't overcome the world to be born of God. You overcome the world because you are born of God, meaning it's His work. He that began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And whoever's born of God overcomes the world. And in Revelation chapter 3, it repeatedly tells us that whoever overcomes the world will be with God forever and ever and ever. It's about being with Him. But it takes God to be with God. Let's go back to Galatians 1. So the first thing here is when a person departs from the gospel, a person departs from God. That's an amazing thing. Secondly, when a person departs from the gospel, a person departs from peace. And mark this well. A person departs from peace. If you want peace, and I know we all do, then do not depart from the gospel because by departing from it, you lose peace. Verse 7. In verse 7, Paul calls a spade a spade. And he tells, us, he tells the Galatians what the situation in Galatia really is. Verse 7, which is really not another gospel. He says, see, they're, they're still using the word gospel. When they're talking to you, they're still saying good news. They're still using the lingo of the Christian church. And he says it exactly like it is. Actually, it's not another gospel at all. There's only one gospel, and they don't have it. Paul is jealous for terminology. He's jealous for the term gospel. And we, too, need to be jealous for terminology and the words that we use, and that we don't use words without meaning, and we don't let other people get away with using words against their true meaning. Because Satan comes, and he corrupts terminology to win the battle. That's what he does. That's what he does here. We can see it all around us here in our culture, right? Oh, I believe in the gospel. Oh, I believe in grace. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in faith. I believe in salvation. I believe in heaven. Wow, you're taking all these words and you're not letting God define them. You're just filling them with your own meaning and saying, oh, we believe the same thing. That's what they're doing here. And Satan, if he can corrupt the terminology, he wins. We have to be jealous like Paul for the meaning of words. Now, Paul tells us, it's not another gospel. And then what he says in the next part of verse 7 is a declaration of the reality of what's going on. This is the real situation. It's not another gospel only. Here's, only means... All that's happening is this. There are some who are disturbing you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. He just tells it like it is. That's 
the reality. He saw through the facade. They would never say, I'm disturbing you. I am wanting to distort the gospel, right? They'd say, I'm helping you. I'm, I'm here to, to supplement. I'm here to get you to, the, to, the, to salvation. I'm here to bring you the real gospel. And Paul cuts through the facade. He sees through it. He speaks the reality of the situation. We need to learn to see through facades as well. Because Satan comes deceptively and attractively. He doesn't just come and declare his purpose and his intentions. I, just, I intend to destroy you. Follow me. You know? You know, these men were powerful personalities, I have no doubt about it. These Pharisees were powerful personalities. We know from Galatians itself that they were zealous for God. These were men who came and they were zealous for God. They had passion, man. They had passion for the Lord. And I'll tell you, that's, a, that's something that trips a lot of people up. You see someone with passion, you think, boys, they have passion, they must be right. I know, because I followed a guy like that once. And he was a false teacher. And I was attracted to his passion. And I thought, wow, he's so passionate, he must be right. Paul says, zeal for God is an awesome thing. By all means, have it. But make sure that you understand that zeal for God needs to be in truth. Because you can be zealous for a lie. Just zeal doesn't make something true. These guys were zealous for God. They were moral in the sense of they looked moral to man. They weren't out there saying, come on guys, let's all go sin it up. They were actually saying, come on guys, let's keep the commandments. They had credentials. They were Pharisees. They were educated. They came from Jerusalem. They, cl- they claimed to come from James. So they have even got the credentials. I'm credentialed. I'm moral. I'm zealous. That's a powerful attraction. And what they're saying, so not only who they are, zealous, moral, and got credentials. What they're saying has a, makes a lot of sense to human wisdom, actually. makes a lot of sense to this world, and it's also pleasing to man. And by listening to them, we can avoid some persecution. We can be exempt from the persecution that we don't want to have. What, an, what a powerful thing that sucks so many people in. You get a personality like that who comes with a message that's ear-tickling, that's pleasing, and that will save you from a lot of grief. We must resist all of those deceptive attractions and see through the facade to what the reality actually is. These guys are spiritual perverts and disturbers. That's what Paul tells tells us they are. They're spiritual perverts. I don't care how moral they are. I don't care their credentials. And I don't care how zealous for God they are. They're perverts, spiritually. Because they're perverting the gospel and disturbing you. Because they're not preaching the truth. You know, it's interesting, in Martin Luther's commentary, famous commentary on Galatians, at this point he points out something pretty interesting. He says, you know, in our day, the Roman Catholics call us reformers disturbers and perverts of the truth. And we reformers call the Roman Catholics disturbers and perverters of the truth. We're both calling each other this. We're both saying this is what's actually going on. You guys are the perverts. No, you guys are the perverts. And it was the same with Paul and the Pharisees. The Pharisees came and said, Paul's the one who's got it all wrong. He's the one who's twisting it. And Paul says, no, they are. Now, of course, we're meaning different things. Luther and the Catholics and the Reformers and Paul and the Pharisees are meaning different things when they say what they say. 
the Catholics charge the Reformers of being disturbers of society, disturbers of the church. You're messing everything up. You're, you're destroying our coherence when we need it most. But Luther pointed this out. He says, we call them disturbers of the conscience. We call them disturbers of the soul. And I want you to notice in verse 7 that that's actually what Paul points to here. He doesn't just say disturbing society. What does he say? There are some who are disturbing you. They're disturbing you. They're, they're, they're agitating you, people. And if you look at Acts chapter 26, no, sorry, Acts chapter uh, 15, Acts 15, verse 24, hold your finger in Galatians 1, we'll go right back there. Acts 15, 24, this is when the apostles in Jerusalem write their letter uh, and they have their counsel over this issue that's going on in Galatians, and they write their letter, and look at the same language as used, but there's a little bit more clarity that's given. Acts 15.24, Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you, here's the same language Paul says, they have disturbed you with their words, meaning unsettling your souls. Isn't that interesting? These guys have come to you and they're, they're unsettling your souls. They're taking away your certainty. They're taking away your assurance. They're taking away your peace. They're unsettling your souls with their perverted gospel. And it, it's fascinating that it's the difference here between disturbing the society and disturbing the conscience. Because you know there's a sense in which the gospel brings peace and there's a sense in which the gospel doesn't bring peace. Right? Jesus said... Don't think that I've come to bring peace. Don't think that anyone who comes to bring peace to society is of me. As so many people say today, you're disturbing society and culture and families. Jesus would never do that. I don't know what Jesus they're reading. <laughs> Jesus explicitly said he came to bring not peace but a sword to families and societies. Right? Matthew 10.34, I don't think I came to bring peace, but a sword to divide mother against daughter and father against son. But of course, in John 14, Jesus talks much about the peace that he does bring, right? My peace I give you, not as the world gives, give I it unto you. There's the peace of society and there's the peace of the soul. And Jesus brings the peace of the soul and... He takes away the peace of the society. In fact, where there's peace in society but not in the soul, there's probably no gospel. And where there's peace in the soul but not in society, that's probably because the gospel is doing its thing. Right? And it, it's interesting, Luther appeals here, how do I solve this dilemma? The Catholics tell me I'm a disturber and a, and a, and a pervert, and I call them, they're, they're the pervert and the disturber. How do we solve this? And it's interesting that Luther wisely appealed to men being set free in their souls as proof. And he contrasted it with the Catholics. He says, your doctrine just, I've only seen despair there, or false peace in people's souls. Despair and false peace. But here's what he says, quote, for the truth hereof, we have the testimony of many men who give thanks unto God for that by our doctrine they have received certain and sure consolation to their consciences. That's what he says is the proof of their doctrine. 
that it brings peace to the soul, the peace that Jesus really brings to mankind. The key, the key two words in Luther's statement there is certain and sure peace. Because like I said, there's a false peace that people can lie to you and give you this false sense of peace. But Luther's saying, our gospel brings real peace to people without avoiding the, the truth. That's what he's saying. Certain and sure peace. The world can give you a false peace, but it's always in the lies. But where the truth gives you peace, where the truth sets you free, that's where the gospel is. How many of you want peace in your soul? You have peace in your soul. Amen, Keith. You want to keep that peace? Stay with the gospel. If you don't have peace in your soul, we know where to get it. You get it in the truth. In the truth that God loves you. And that there's a just God who's a judge, yes, but he's provided for you righteousness through his son, Jesus Christ. You can be saved by grace this day. And to paraphrase the prophet of the Old Testament, there is no true peace for the unrighteous. So to depart from the gospel, number two, is to depart from peace. Lastly, when a person departs from the gospel, according to Galatians 1, they don't just depart from God and they don't just depart from peace, but that person follows the damned to destruction. Verse 8 and 9. When a person departs from the gospel and follows after some other thing, they are following the damned to destruction. Verse 8 and 9. These two verses here are among the strongest language in the New Testament, and it's repeated, which means it's really, 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 really important when the Apostle Paul repeats himself. Which means we need to take note and listen up. Paul is saying there is only one gospel, and not even an apostle or an angel is safe if they preach another one. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That's how serious this gospel thing is. That's how serious the truth of the matter is. You are not safe if you're an angel or an apostle. You don't just say, well, you know, I'm going to get into heaven because I'm an apostle. You know, I've got a good card. I've got a good badge. I've got a good clearance card, you know. Calvin says this language in 8 and 9 not only exhibits in an impressive manner the majesty of the Word of God, but yields also a powerful confirmation to our faith, while in reliance on that Word, we feel ourselves at liberty to treat even angels with defiance and scorn. He's saying the Word of God is so majestic that when we trust in it, we hold to it, we can even treat angels with scorn when they come to us with another gospel and say, a revelation from God, a new, look, look at all the light that's beaming off of my body. I've got a new gospel from God. And if it's not the gospel, we can treat that angel with scorn. That's an amazing gospel. A sure and steadfast word. Because it's the gospel or the word of God that really matters. And Paul would stand against the entire world and heaven of, with all the angels. If they all came and preached another gospel, he would say, no. Would, would we also be like Paul? Ask yourself if an angel showed up in your bedroom tonight and said, you know, that whole righteousness through faith thing is wrong. And what if he did it with sincere, a sincere face and words? He said, yeah, no, you, don't think that you can just believe in Jesus and be saved. My friend, I'm here to help you. 
Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could be saved by his grace. He died on the cross to help you become a better person. And it's only through becoming a better person can you be saved. I tell you this in the name of God, and he leaves. How many of us would scorn that angel like the Apostle Paul would scorn him? Paul says the angels, Satan deceives, comes as an angel of light, doesn't he? And he comes as a minister of righteousness with his false gospel. The penalty for preaching another gospel, the, the scripture says here in 8 and 9, is anathema. It's the Greek word that's used. Translated in my Bible here as he is to be accursed. Anathema does not mean excommunicated from the church. Some people think, they try to lessen the Paul, Paul's word here and they say, he's not saying they're going to go to hell. He's just saying, let them be kicked out of the church. But Paul here means devoted uh, to, to be accursed. Anathema means here, or not just here, anathema means to be devoted to destruction. That's what the meaning of the word is. To be set apart for destruction. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21, verse 3. Because you know, most things, if not everything in the New Testament, is rooted in the Old Testament. The way the apostles thought comes from the scriptures of the prophets. Numbers 21, verse 3. And there's actually a lot of places we can go in the Old Testament. I'll just give you a sampling here. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. In the Hebrew, the word means devoted to destruction. The place was under the ban. It was set apart to be annihilated. The word that was translated, when it was translated into the Greek, the word here is actually anathema. And they called the name of that place anathema. You want to have a mental picture of what anathema is? Think of it a city that was utterly destroyed. And it was devoted to that destruction. If you, if you follow the word, the same Hebrew word throughout the Old Testament, and the, the different places where the, the translators translated it anathema, when they translated to the Septuagint in Greek, it's always this sense of being destroyed and devoted to destruction. Let me show you an interesting passage in Acts 23. Acts 23. I'll show you two passages in the New Testament that point out what this anathema is. Acts 23. This is a really interesting passage, verse 14. This is when Paul's in, uh, in prison and there's a bunch of Jewish people who vow before God that they're going to kill him. Right? And look at this. Verse 14, they, come, they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. You know what the Greek is there? We have anathematized ourselves to anathema. We will not eat anything unless Paul's killed or else we shall be anathema. That's what he said. They're basically cursing themselves to perdition if they don't destroy Paul. That's a heavy oath. And then the last place would be in Romans chapter 9 that we'll look at. Romans chapter 9. Verse 3. The word anathema is used here as well.
Romans 9, verse 3, word anathema is used where Paul says, I could wish that I myself were anathema, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, I I would wish myself to be separated from Christ if I could, for their sake. That is love. But notice what anathema is here. It's not to be excommunicated from the church. He says, I wish I could be excommunicated from the church for their sakes. It's, I wish that I could be separated from Christ, accursed, lost, so that they could be saved. Theodore Epps says, there's nothing mild about these words. In Galatians chapter 1, the situation called for this kind of warning. The severity of Paul is not proof that he was an unloving man. On the contrary, it was proof that he was a loving man and that in love he was being a watchman for them. And he was saying, guys, if you follow those guys, you are following the damned to destruction. And I'm telling you that because I love you. And I'm not soft-pedaling reality. People don't speak much like this anymore. Right? Even Christians, we've distanced ourselves much from talking about anathema or a curse, something being devoted to destruction by God. We've turned away from talking about hell because it's not very comfortable to talk about hell, is it? But, brothers and sisters, it wasn't comfortable to talk about hell in the first century either. It's a, it's a matter of love, not comfort. It's a matter of whether we're going to care about people and tell them tell them. Uh, what reality actually is. Tell it like it is and say, if you follow those teachings, you're going to be following the damned to destruction. If we don't, if we don't feel like we can speak like Paul, or people don't speak like this much anymore, but if our gospel is the same as Paul's, and it better be, then we can and we ought to say these things too. And if we can't say these things, it's, because we're not being apostolic. We're not imitating Paul and the apostles. Why does preaching another gospel merit anathema? And I, I thought up of at least three things. I'm sure you could think of more. But one, preaching another gospel prevents people from being saved because it, it points them in the direction of their own righteousness. It, because there's only it's either righteousness through Christ or righteousness through your own work. Preaching another gospel prevents people from being saved as it points them to themselves as their own Savior and it peeps them in lies and not the truth. God hates that. John Stott says, to corrupt the gospel was to destroy the way of salvation and so to send to ruin souls who might have been saved by it. God hates lies and self-righteousness. This merits anathema. Secondly, to preach another gospel insults the crucifixion and makes it a thing of naught, makes it nothing, makes it vain. As it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, if righteousness comes by the law, like you guys are saying it does, Christ died for nothing. He didn't die for anything if you can be righteous by what you do. What an insult to the crucifixion of Jesus. Therefore, preaching another gospel merits anathema. And thirdly, preaching another gospel ultimately at the root is attacking the glory of God. It's presenting a way that is of man and not of God. As we talked about last week, what is of God is through God and to God and for his glory. But preaching another gospel and preaching what is of man is really of man, through man, and it's to man for man's glory. And this is the ultimate reason people perish. 
is that they will not glorify God and that they seek their own glory. All the sins of the world can probably be put under that umbrella. It attacks the glory of God. This is what it's actually doing. And therefore, it merits anathema. Anathema is the sober and appropriate judgment for preaching another gospel. But on a lighter note, all throughout the book of Galatians, this anathema here, this curse, will be contrasted repeatedly throughout the letter with its opposite, with the blessings that come upon those who believe the gospel and follow that one road to Jesus Christ to the Father. So you've got anathema at the beginning, but lots and lots of promise of blessing to those who believe the truth and who put their faith in Christ. In conclusion this morning, I repeat that departing from the gospel costs a person God, it costs a person peace, and it costs a person eternal blessing. It brings upon you a curse. In verse 4 of Galatians chapter 1, Paul says that Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. The age that now is under the control of Satan. That age is without God and it's without true peace and it's destined for destruction. That's that age. And Jesus died to set us free and rescue us from that age. And for those of us who have believed the true gospel, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not trusting in yourself, you're trusting in the righteousness that comes through him. You're putting your trust in that bloody tree, that bloody cross, where he died to take away your sins. And if you're trusting in Christ for your righteousness, the scripture declares that you are rescued. You are not a part of this present order anymore. You're not under the judgment of God. You're not under the condemnation of sin anymore. If you are rescued from the present evil age through faith in Christ, be encouraged this morning, brothers and sisters. You have God, and you'll have him forever. You have peace, and you'll have it forever. And you are not destined to destruction, but to eternal life and blessings. So let's remember that all roads do not lead to God. And let's rejoice that there is a way to God. That way is the gospel, the great mystery of righteousness through faith, the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the truth of the gospel would be implanted deep within our hearts and that we would never depart from it. Lord, we know that we have an adversary that seeks to deceive us and draw us away from the truth. And I pray that each and every one of us would not think themselves self-sufficient and strong in, them, in, them, in themselves to stand, Lord. I pray that we would always draw our strength from you. Lord, thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the righteousness we have through faith. Lord, help us as we think about that to be filled with joy and wonder and to give you the praise that you truly are worthy of. Thank you for loving us and calling us in your grace. We love you, Lord. When we think of you in truth, we truly do love you. We pray that you be glorified in all that we do in the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.